Hi, this episode's guest is Mutram Dindar, an assistant tenure-track professor at the University of Tampere, Finland, studying game-based learning. His current research focuses on the utilization of multimodal data for understanding social cognition and social contagion in game-based and collaborative learning environments. We discuss what makes learning fun and how we can use what we learn about our behavior in games to create better game-based learning experiences. We hope you find this interview exciting and intriguing. Welcome to Learning Clan. So if you don't know, this is uh, this is uh, a podcast we started because, you know, uh, we we find that there's so many intersections, let's say, of learning and culture or learning and business, learning and life. Um, and there's not really a lot of places to to talk about these things, where they come together, where they meet. Uh, and just sort of have more expanded discussions on the wider world of learning. Um, and actually, what uh, you know, it was it was great. You put the um, your your student uh, researcher in touch with me, so that sort of reminded me. And and right around the same time, I think I'd seen the video that uh, Tampere University put out featuring you and the research that you were doing. And I was like, ah, this is great. Because we also get, of course, a lot of questions about gamification. It's a really hot topic um, in, I'd say, learning in general, like everywhere from, uh, you know, um, like preschool and and primary school all the way through to corporate training. It, it's everyone sort of talking about it. And personally, I have some. I'm sort of on the fence about about if it's. Uh, effective or to what extent it is effective, where we can use it. Uh, and I'm also more interested, and in, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I got the sense that your research in particular is a lot more interested in what's going on in, in our minds when we game. Why do we, you know, I was thinking about like, I play some games and like, how do I learn them so quickly? You know, it's a whole new set of mechanics every time you enter and, and people learn them really fast. So I guess we can uh, we can start with um, what makes learning fun or why is learning in games fun? Well, maybe before coming to games, actually, uh, as you said, we can we can start like well, what makes learning fun, the activity itself become fun. Uh, well, learning becomes fun when it triggers our curiosity and learning becomes fun when the, the subject of learning or knowledge construction is about ongoing interests, like we would like to learn about things we are interested in, or learning becomes fun when the, the again the, the the knowledge the topic of knowledge kind of raises triggers new interests fields inside our mind. Let's say that's when learning becomes fun. And apart from uh, that, we humans. We don't like to be passive recipients of knowledge, just like we are sitting and just someone is telling about concepts, formulas, knowledge. It's just, yeah, let's say, dictating us specific content, concepts. Learning becomes fun, actually, when we have the hands-on experiences on the learning concept itself, like when we like try experiments on, do, do experiments on them, if it's a simulation, try the simulation and rather than just being passive we would like to be the ac active uh, 
knowledge constructor in, in that setting. So <coughs> in that case, uh, learning becomes also fun. For example, when it's a problem solving activity, then you, you jump into the situation, you tackle the obstacles. And apart from developing the knowledge, solving the problem kind of gives us a satisfaction. These are the features I can say that makes learning fun, being active, problem-centered, hands-on experiences, and it should trigger our curiosity, let's say. Are there, um, are there types of problems people tend to gravitate towards to in, in learning situations? I just, it, it sort of sparked a question in me like, okay, when we're solving problems, the problem needs to be fun. And I think it's, it's probably quite easy to have a problem and frame it in a way that is unfun and a way that is much more fun. And is there any, are there any qualifiers that we can, that we can attach to that? Yep, the problem itself from the beginning and the process of solving, it doesn't have to be fun, actually. Like the, there are several epistemic emotions when we experience when solving problems. Frustration is, is one of these, for example. We get frustrated, we get frustrated because you can't find a solution, let's say. But in the end, when we solve the problem, the whole experience becomes fun. Oh, it was fun. I, I solved it. So in that case, the process itself, it doesn't have to be fun. The, the right. outcome, the, the satisfaction of solving that problem, maybe it is the it is the thing that brings the fun. I remember a professor, I can't actually remember his name. He might be Bandra or not. Like they asked him, like, hey, has he had a happy life? And he said, Yeah, I had a happy life, but I have never had a happy week. So <laughs> in a way, <laughs> problems and, and challenges that they are frustrating and annoying in any moment, but tackling those and continuing, uh, I think that that's that's the fun. And again, Winston Churchill says like success is running from failure to failure without losing excitement. So so in a way, yeah, the problem itself, it doesn't have to be funny by nature. Right. Okay, that's really cool. I like I like that that there's this embrace of failure along with it, and um, and I think that I think that's another really good point that you know it will bring like things like frustration, and that that's kind of critical to these learning processes. Like you're being frustrated because you're being challenged, and that's ultimately a good thing in the end. Yes, definitely. Uh, the, to to the frustration. Maybe like psychologically, it comes from like or anxiety. Let's say we feel like we are not in control of events or things going around us. So in a problem situation, by developing knowledge around the problem, what are the variables affecting this problem situation, and how can I get rid of these inconsistencies, incongruencies, or or other challenges in, in the problem situation itself? Yeah, that's that's what it triggers. And yeah. Okay, so going. Trying to bring these ideas to games. Yes. Is then um, using games in learning or using games to understand learning? It's um, is it that they're a creative way to approach these problems, or or an engaging way to approach these problems, or to approach problems? Yeah, definitely. Uh, again, connecting to this to what makes learning fun. It, by, by nature, when you ask a regular person, I guess, why do you play games? Because they are fun. We play games. So uh, in a way, actually, games have quite inherent features. They are highly relevant to the to those concepts we have discussed about what makes learning fun. 
games trigger curiosity. Games are full of puzzles and problems to be solved. There are challenges, there are increasing difficulties. So in, in a way, adaptive challenges and we are improving our skills in the game environment. <clears throat> and based on that, more and more challenges are coming. And one thing I have also forgot to say in the previous question is that learning becomes more fun when it is presented around stories and narratives. And in mm -hmm. game environments, uh, when exploring the territory of the game, there is a story, there is a narrative. So in that case, actually, we see that there are many overlapping uh, bridges between what makes learning fun and what games can offer. That's why games are, are a promising venue to, to, to make learning, let's say, more fun and more effective because we would like to keep doing things that gives us pleasure and enjoyment. And if I enjoy this activity, I spend more time by nature. If we spend more time on a practice, we become more expert or more knowledgeable on, on, on that field. That's, that's the overlap between games and learning. Okay. To fun, let's say. So um, what kind of games do you play? Uh, I, actually, this is the question that scares me the most. I have to, yeah confess actually my hobbies do not include playing games okay i have several and many colleagues around me like who became game researchers because they love playing games they from childhood like they, they have been involved in in these famous game communities and they, they still play games and in, in a way game research is is their life in, in addition to playing games themselves but my uh, starting point studying games was not actually the activity of game itself I was more curious and interested about what goes on in our minds when learning. So I was more interested in the human psychology when what goes on in our mind when, when learning occurs. And of course, the, the games are now becoming a digital medium. Uh, they are they, they are much more visible in the society. And, and then the question comes then, what happens in our mind and body? when we play games and learn with games. That was my starting point, I can, I can say. And, and, and yeah, unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm not a game geek. I, there, are not there are no specific games. I just, yeah, follow all the time. Every now and then I, I try some mobile games, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but, but nowadays I don't play much because, yeah, life commitments. I have two little kids, so I'm in a different phase of my life, I guess, which there are multiple priorities, eating away time that I can use for, for, for playing uh, games, uh, let's see. So, um, well then let's go to, to what happens in games. What, what happens to us when we're playing games? Uh, well, uh, again, yeah, uh, in a way playing game is a, is a, is an embodied activity and at the same time a, a cognitive and emotional activity, let's say. Uh, I, I'm not from neurosciences field, honestly. I'm not gonna go deep details of like what happens at the hormonal level when we play games, but I guess like in, in any kind of exciting situation, the adrenaline, la, la, uh, the adrenaline rush and the dopamine and that kind of hormones that triggers happiness and excitement, so and enjoyment that that's part of the, the embodied experience. And then apart from that, uh, cognitively, uh, as we have briefly mentioned, we go through several epistemic emotions. By, by saying epistemic emotions, it's, it's like the emotions uh, about the nature of knowledge. When we are presented a knowledge, if it kind of 
uh, is, it is in parallel with our previous knowledge. We just automatically process the, the situation and condition. But if it doesn't fit to our previous knowledge, then an incongruency happens. Let's say this can lead to frustration. This can lead to surprise. Uh, this can lead to boredom or happiness. So these kind of emotions I'm talking about when, when talking emotions. So in, 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 in any game condition like success, failure, advancing, not advancing, uh, in a way it's a very emotional experience. So we go through several emotions when, when playing games. And, and when we talk about emotions, actually this is not separate from what goes on in our cognition. Because emotions and cognition, they are they're highly interrelated and they are providing uh, feedback cues to each other, like, like cognitively you are processing that I don't understand this. And then it creates frustration in, inside you. And then that frustration comes back to your cognition, let's say, and then how can I tackle this challenging situation? So you cognitively develop strategies in a way, regulate yourself to, to, to tackle that challenging situation. So to summarize, uh, I, I can say that uh, 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 in a way, playing games is, is a cognitive and affective roller coaster, and cognition and affect is, is highly intertwined and interrelated during playing games. Okay. <laughs> uh, and in your in your recent research, uh, specifically, like what were you what were you measuring? Maybe what what were you having the the research subjects do or play? What was the what was the goal and the, the outcome? Uh, so uh, as you as you know me from University of Oldo, actually, like my five years postdoc time there, my background comes from collaborative learning. Uh, so I'm interested in how individuals collaborate and how they succeed or fail while collaborating. What are the effective moments uh, or effective procedures or strategies that makes teams succeed or fail? And I still keep that interest, actually. Uh, unfortunately, many of the educational games uh, in, in our field is single player games. But when we look at the actual game behavior in, in the gaming industry, there are lots of multiplayer games and, uh, and, and the socialization is a big motivation for, for other people to, to play games, uh, joining teams, setting up teams, clans, yeah, competing against other teams. In, in a way, I'm more interested in the social dynamics, social nature of gameplay. In this regard, I'm highly interested in competitive and collaborative gaming situations, in a way, multiplayer games. That's my interest. And my, my research focuses on how we can utilize these competitive and collaborative game mechanics to, to, to make team interaction more effective, to, to make teams collaborate better and succeed better. And whether is it possible to provide teams adaptive support, let's say when they fail, uh, or when they are pro not progressing well. So in, in this regard, my, my research focuses on the, the, the collaborative or competitive team dynamics in, in multiplayer educational games. Right. And to, to achieve this, uh, I, I utilize different data modalities. I mean, different types of data, let's say. By modality, uh, I mean types of data. For example, I, I collect uh, facial emotions data of the multiplayer gamers and they are playing educational games and trying to understand <clears throat> how emotional contagion is manifested during the interacting team players and whether this emotional contagion tells us anything about 
leader follower leader follower dynamics in a team can we detect team leaders or team followers by just looking at this emotional contagion who is mimicking whose emotions copying whose emotions let's say so what do these facial expressions tell about epistemic emotions like like the emotions that triggers our cognitive processes these are my interests and apart from that uh, i am also interested in uh, physiological coupling between the team members and they play competitive or collaborative games. By, by physiological coupling, uh, I mean that the, the physiological signals derived from our autonomous nervous system, like heart rate, let's say, electrodermal activity. So these are not bodily signals we can just consciously control. Like they, they are kind of the, the output of what goes on in our mind and in our emotions. So by looking at these physiological synchrony, whether the, the team players are both physiologically aroused at the same time, whether the increased or decreased heart rate at the same time does it tell anything about team interaction, inter quality of team interaction or, or team performance. <clears throat> These are my uh, current uh, focus of interest, I can say. Okay, so you're collecting uh, facial data, <clears throat> like eye tracking and, and expression, uh, like facial capture stuff, and heart rate and um, I'm just curious about like what the actual models or models of uh, data are. I think that might be interesting uh, for everyone. For example, I can say electrodermal activity is one of them. So yeah. uh, when we are physiologically aroused, like when we are excited, angry or scared, uh, we sweat more. And when we sweat more, the electricity on our skin increases. So we check that skin conductance. Uh, by electrodermal activity uh, and, and see whether this increased or decreased physiological arousal relates to specific cognitive processes like processing learning, tackling challenges in right. game-based learning environments. And similar to it also like heart rate, heart rate variability, for example, uh, in mentally stressful conditions, our heart rate variability changes. So this kind of indicates whether the participants or the learners are stressed or like what, what's going on in their mind. That, that's another modality we are interested in. And in terms of eye tracking, we are interested in joint attention. Like in a game environment, you know, team play, you are in an immersive environment and everyone is maybe looking at different locations or everyone is looking at the same location in terms of tackling the challenge or the problem. So by joint uh, eye gaze, I mean when the participants or the players look into same objects, same same uh, objects in the in the game environment, let's say, whether this joint attention in terms of eye tracking data tells us anything about joint cognitive processes in the team. Uh, that's that's one area of uh, focus. And and we capture facial expressions of the participants through video cameras in our lab when they are playing games. So this also gives us information when let's say, physiological signals in terms of electrodermal activity, when the signal indicates increase by merging it or checking it with, uh, kind of like checking it with the eye track, sorry, the facial expression data, we could see this increased physiological arousal relates to surprise, relates to anger, relates to happiness. So in that case, these different data types or modalities are not separate from each other, actually. We kind of uh analyze them in a combined manner to understand the 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 the, the, the phenomenon of team process in a, in a more comprehensive way from multiple directions okay 
Um, <clears throat> I'm curious about what games uh, or types of games are being used. And if there's, I imagine that there would be a difference if you've got someone on something like a, a Minecraft type game where it's a very like constructive, creative kind of environment uh, versus something like, a, you know, like a Call of Duty or a first person sort of action adventure game. Like, do you use all those things and, and are there differences that you're aware of? Uh, yeah, since my focus is on educational sciences, honestly, I in my lab, I only utilize educational games. Uh, for example, first-person shooting games, role-player games. If the, the, the sole object of the game is not improving a specific knowledge, say on a specific curriculum area, uh, that's kind of out of my interest because the field right. is vast. But I, I have been in collaboration and in contact with our colleagues here in information technology uh, faculty, and that's, that's that kind of research they conduct, actually. So their games are not limited to educational games. But my focus is specifically on, on educational games. For example, currently, uh, I'm collecting data on, on a biology game on, on evolution and basic genetics. So the this is a three or four player games. So when the participants play the game, basically we have birds uh, and they are all gray color. And they, the objective of the game is that you, you will make the birds colorful again. Like their caps will be colorful, wings, tail, chest, let's say. And this comes to the genes, of course. They have to conduct specific experiments in the environment to understand which genes the birds have and which gene, which birds should be mated to, to create a specific type of bird, let's say. So in a way, it's, it's a problem-solving game, let's say, because there is this gray bird and everyone in the team should produce three of those desired birds. And it takes, let's say, 40 to 50 minutes to, to, to complete the game. And game ends when the participants, uh, each participant have three of those desired birds, let's say. And we quantify success in terms of number of mating. The, the less mating, the higher score you have. So you have to be very strategic in uh, mating the birds. Right. If you just you do those? trial and error, which just means that you're not yeah, really cognitively trying to solve the problem. You're just trying things. And then, then uh, the, the number of mating skyrockets and basically you lose the game, game compared to the, to the other teams, let's say. Uh, to, to, to sum up, I'm, I'm more kind of like limited in the parameter of educational games, let's say. Mm. Yeah, I, I asked just because, I mean, I, I play some games myself uh, and I, I do find that there are um, increasingly, there's a lot of uh, situations, so it might be a role playing game. I like those, um, but they're, I mean, regularly these days, including a lot of, a lot of unique problem solving uh, scenarios. And so this is just, it's kind of making me think about um, what is the what is the role in the future of um, games and uh, let's say game development houses, educational games. Um, is this something that you see expanding? Um, because of course, like resources are a big part of this. And yeah. if you've got a huge production studio, then, you know, making some very like engaging, creative uh, game that, also has these, you know, you become better with, I don't know, physical problem solving or spatial reasoning or something as a result. It's teaching you those kind of things almost yes. in the background of the gameplay. Is that is that a direction? Is the industry ready for that? Or is it uh, too many competing interests? 
Uh, well, first of all, I would like to start with these like games and problem solving uh, skills. As you said, in, in, in many games, there are different types of problem solving. And this is uh, not a new issue in a way that like when these digital games became and educational games became more and more popular, let's say after 2000s, like there was this kind of like an understanding of like, you know, if you just play games, role playing games, whatever fantasy games, because it includes so much problem solving, then it would improve your problem solving skills in, in real life. And there were systematic literature reviews like studying that. Yeah, everyone claims that, but no one measures it. I did actually. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it. So what I have done is like, OK, the question is like do playing industry games, let's say role playing games, first person shooting games. And even it can be a basic mobile game like Candy Crush, let's say, like does it really improve our problem solving skills? So what I have done is that I have visited high schools, almost 400 students. I first gave them a self report, like which games they play, how many hours they play and all those kind of basic questions about their gameplay behavior. And then I gave them PISA problem solving test. PISA problem solving test is, is a kind of universal test like to compare the education systems all over the world and 15 year old students from all over the world participate in this PISA test. And then, so since 2005, I guess, this problem solving is a separate category measured in addition to maths and science skills, let's say. So I gave these simulations, they are computer-based simulations problems. I gave them to high school students as well. And I found zero relation, no relationship between basically video gameplay behaviors, gameplay preferences, and problem solving skills. And actually, this also kind of like corroborates with the understanding of on, on, on psychology and educational psychology, especially because there is this concept of the curse of domain specificity. So the knowledge, the skills we developed in a specific context can only be applied in that context. So we can only be experts in the fields we are, we are studying and we are learning about. For example, one can be a perfect, fantastic surgeon, but at the same time, he can be horrible in making financial decisions. Being a great surgeon and having a great knowledge in that field does not mean that you're also a great problem solver in other fields. So that's the, that's the issue in a way. So we shouldn't uh, take this granted that, okay, if we keep playing games, we'll be better problem solvers. It doesn't happen because uh, learning requires effort, focus, and perseverance on a specific domain, uh, field of domain, let's say. Uh, that's what I would like to say uh, for, for the relationship between video gameplay and, and problem solving skills. And once I, I saw this fantastic tweet, I would like to say also, uh, talking about the impact of games is not different than talking about the impact of food on our health. Because it all depends on the type of food you consume, let's say. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the issue. And coming back to your second industry and educational games, education industrial institutions, like whether they have competing interests or like whether they can converge together in the future to build educational games that can be scalable. There are certain challenges on this and definitely the, the focus of gaming industry is, is profit and business, and there's so much profit and business by just creating games for entertainment. But when it comes to creating games games for education, uh, so the, the market is not that big, let's say, mm. because 
schools are providing the education. So uh, and another challenge is the the comp uh, the you you create a game and basically anyone in the world can play it. But in the world, the, the curriculum are quite different across the countries. So it's yeah. not like you create a single game and it can be played by all the, let's say, middle school students, preschool kids. So it's, it's, it's challenging to create scalable educational games due to these cultural differences, political differences among the countries, curriculum differences and those things. So investing on educational games is, is it risky from the game producers perspective, I guess that that's, that's one challenge. Uh, but but nowadays uh, we, we definitely see that there are several companies who solely focus on educational games and who are providing services for 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 schools in terms of let's say teaching math science skills and that kind of stuff. So we we also did that see that there is an increasing investment on on producing educational games in in specific specific countries like Netherlands, for example. Like you know, already primary and secondary schools there are specific games that are often used for teaching maths and literacy skills to, 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 the, to the primary school students like maths garden, for example. Uh, so in a way, I don't see them as competing entities, uh, but so far they had uh, diverse interests, like diverging interests, let's say. Yeah. But now we see that there are also companies who are interested in like paying more attention to the education field and producing games uh, for, for the educational uh, uh, organizations. And of course, there is this one challenge of uh, digital divide, let's say. In a way, playing a digital game is, is, is a privilege because then this means that you should have a kind of like a rather good mobile phone if it's a mobile game or a decent computer, desktop computer or internet connection. So in a way, like Basically, you should be maybe middle class, something like that. Uh, and anyone who can access to that, a game you produce can be accessed by, by all those who have the internet and the, and the phones or, or, the, or the devices. But when we talk about educational institutions, and we know that in some parts of the world, there is no internet in school, there are no proper infrastructure to provide digital games to the players because kids don't have smartphones, kids don't have computers, kids don't have internet. So then how can you create educational games for these kids? Uh, so the, there, there are these kind of digital inequity, inequity challenges as well. But but hopefully, yeah, uh, we will tackle those those challenges. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that there are, there are multiple challenges coming yeah. that, that come from the educational decision makers, that come from the interests of the industry, and the, the, that come also from the economical conditions in the world. Okay. So uh, I wanted to return to this idea of uh, the domain specificity. Um, yes. Because, okay, so if we're dealing with a thing like we want to improve problem solving. Yes. But we don't want to do it particularly in this one game where it has particular physics or, or whatever reality to it. What is the... What is then the the challenge or the threshold? Like, how can we design a game that is going to improve problem solving? Is that where like a lot of this kind of, I guess, research will come in and um, curriculum and these kind of things start to really play an effect? Do we have to design around those principles? 
So do you mean how we can maybe develop a game that would improve improve domain-free problem-solving skills? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, this also comes to the discussion of a bit like, you know, there were these several mobile games became kind of popular, like cognitive trainers, like this is great against, let's say, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, or like it just trains your mind and your, your cognition becomes better and that kind of stuff. And actually the studies showed that they had no effect on improving cognition and some of those game companies had to pay quite some fine to the players actually. So coming back to that, like uh, though, though, uh, I'm not sure like again, like there is this domain free problem solving skills. And when we talk about them, actually they are like practical real life problem solving skills, how you deal with the humans, yeah, how you deal with, with basic issues in, this, in, in, in actual daily life conditions. And then if we would like to develop such skills, then we should put participants into game that have, that that include the simulations of those real life conditions that that would require us to to develop our skills to to tackle those problems. So in a way, that the games should be more realistic. Actually, they should okay. simulate more what's going on in actual life than just creating a fantasy world like fantasy concepts, settings, and and the problems are artificial. Right. Then we should do the opposite. We should make the problems actually more actual and realistic. For example, we see this in 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 climate change issues. There are several virtual reality or like games developed to tackle with uh, climate change and raise awareness about that. So they are not just creating fictional worlds. It's just most of the narratives and stories are actually coming from an actual. Uh, real life settings that say you are the mayor of a city and the carbon emissions and the stuff so you are making real decisions and that's maybe including your skills or problem solving skills in in that field so coming back to summarize i think that the the problems in, in such games should be more realistic than if we would okay. like to improve them in reach problem solving skills so then that would lead me i'm gonna make an assumption here um lead me to believe that um the, your opinion, for example, of things like uh, Minecraft. I know there's a huge push with like Minecraft and Roblox in uh, in education settings, uh, especially with like young learners. It's really pushed. They do mine. Like, is there any value, or is that a uh, just a kind of? I am I am skeptical. Thinly veiled move say. by the company. Uh, like, and this game thing because like yeah, digital games are maybe new, like like few decades. But the games are themselves, they're not new. Like for, for decades, there were this like understanding, like, you know, if you play chess, chess is good for, for your like memory problem solving or like it's good for, for your for your mind, isn't it? Now, yeah. current systematic literature reviews again show that actually like being good at chess, it doesn't require necessarily mean that you're a very smart person. Uh, so coming back to this minecraft let's say it might be fun challenging to to yeah put blocks together and it's, it's a creative act i don't deny that uh, so in a way it might trigger creativity and creative power of the learner but does it really improve cognition or problem solving skills I, i'm not sure I, i'm i'm, I'm uh, most skeptical on that perspective and of course, uh, so we will see these maybe effects in five, ten years when this Minecraft generation kind of like becomes young adults and like we see their performance in actual life. And then, yeah, we might have a chance to see whether these Minecraft and roadblocks and that kind of building worlds uh, games really have any impact on development of, of young generation. But as I said, I am I'm skeptical. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking uh, now I'm sort of thinking about uh, the alternative sort of thing might be uh, situations uh, in like maker spaces, because then we have some of the things that you've been discussing. We have problems, uh, problems and challenges uh, and, and certainly frustration. And it's, but it's very applied. It's very active, and it's it's yes. playful. It's not maybe a game, but it is a playful activity to explore these these technologies and tools and make something. Definitely, I'm I'm very pro maker spaces. I believe like learning by constructing, learning by hands on experiences. That's that's what maker spaces are around, and that that's great opportunity for 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 young generations, for individuals to develop the, their skills and, and knowledge and problem solving. So in a way, I'm I'm definitely yeah supporting this this makers movement uh, in terms of developing maths and and science skills uh, and technological understanding of of young generations. I think uh, maybe we shouldn't confuse games, digital games, with the with the makers movements. Games can be part of it. Yeah, of course you can create a game a game environment which let's say simulates creating devices which includes maths, science, and that kind of knowledge development also to, to, to solve those challenges and the stuff, then it would be in line with the makers movements. But I guess uh, maker spaces, are, 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 they have, they carry specific differences than digital game environments, yeah. I can say. Yeah, for sure. So I guess then this brings us to the to the big question, which is, is the hype around gamification justified? Well, uh, Actually, we have already passed that hype area, I guess. Like when, whenever a new technology is introduced, introduced, it kind of always comes with a hype, you know. Uh, nowadays, the hype is artificial intelligence, virtual reality. Before that, it was, let's say, uh, gamification, games. Uh, so we, we always see these huge expectations from any kind of new technology introduced. Like it's going to change everything. And this hype continues five, ten years, and then the reality hits like, okay, maybe it will just change some things, not everything. So this was kind of same for, for gamification, like especially in business field, I have to say, like it kind of just kind of became hype, like you know, if you gamify incentive systems, if you gamify everything, it's gonna be very fun, you know, people will be more attached to work and the stuff. So, but yeah, the the, the hype hasn't kind of didn't produce the, the expectations. And now, like the the, the research and the, the understanding is becoming more realistic. Okay, gamification has limits as well, and can support learning and engagement with whatever activity you are designing to 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 a certain extent. But in a way, it's not a silver bullet itself, just or a magic wand that just solves everything. And this is not limited to gamification or digital games. Any kind of technology, yeah, it comes with limitations also. But I don't know, we just fall into this trap quite often, like, oh, let's getting so much excited and like having so much expectations and then getting disappointed about that because not because of the technology, because of our huge expectations, let's say. So, uh, so I can say that that hype is kind of like has faded in gamification field and it's becoming more realistic about how games or gamification can work uh, and in which conditions it doesn't work. Yeah. actually. So um well maybe a couple follow-ups to that um where does it work or or to your knowledge where do you see it work and are there um are there negative impacts are there things that it can actually be detrimental to to a learning situation 
Yeah, uh, to, to, to my understanding and, and belief, gamification uh, would be most beneficial and efficient if it triggers uh, sustained social interactions between team members. Uh, kind of like the, the if it boosts the team cohesion. Mm -hmm. In the long term, it might have. So it's it's not the game itself because if you bond with people, then you don't want to fail with them. You are part of the team or clan, with your with your concept. So in that way, it it creates this team cohesion and it 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 yields better performance in, in the long term. But if we just limit gamification to like giving badges, leaderboards, like okay, I'm I'm you know you remember these like fast food shops, employee of the month. We see those leaderboards everywhere there. They have been there for 50, 60 years, maybe longer, isn't yeah. it? And yeah. it's not like, and, and in, that industry is one of the like most common industries that people just try to leave as soon as possible, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's just like for your summer school or like when you are youngsters, youngster, but, but anyway, so just leaderships or just giving people some badges in long term, it means nothing. So in a way, gamification works if if the intensities, the incentives are really mean something to the person, and if the incentive is actually intrinsic, like if I'm really, I I feel like I have developed my skills, I'm I'm learning new things by participating in this gamified activity. It can be a company action, it can be a learning activity. So in the end, as a person, apart from badges and leaderboards or those, well, they were fake. Titles they give to me, like what it really means to me, like as a person, how does it improve myself? So that's what we should focus for. In the end, what persons, what people receive, and and I'm not talking about the badges. In terms of knowledge, in terms of skill and development, and also the, the connection to the company or the connection to the to the to the environment and surrounding. That's when gamification works. If if we create that kind of team cohesion, social bonding, and knowledge development. If you cannot sustain that, then uh, it just wears off pretty quickly, actually. Right. And you know, also like you get used to that. It's like YouTube ads, let's say, because you know that you just try to skip it as fast as possible because you know that that's that's part of the company strategy. Let's say trying to sell you some some stuff. So in a way, like when you just coming across with these game fight actions and. You become, you know, they are trying to trick us again, like let's not participate right. in this activity or like take shortcuts and kind of like cheat in the game or whatever. So in that case, it, it wouldn't work. And another thing is this game fight actions. Uh, one, one thing that might be detrimental is destructive competition. Uh, this is unfortunately applied quite often in, in big corporations. Let's say if you are, if your performance, your performance is below specific threshold, you are fired. If you are above a specific threshold, you get the bonuses and all that kind of stuff. So every year, some people are getting like lots of bonuses. At the same time, some people are just being yeah laid off and that kind of negative competition. So this means that your success in this environment depends on others' failure. Although you are coined as we are team, let's do great, let's do all together. So this kind of negative competition and negative social interdependence it might really be detrimental to the to the to the corporate culture, to the to the psychological well-being of the individuals, and we should be careful about utilizing gamification for this kind of destructive competition. Right. But on the other hand, if yeah, we can utilize these games for for increasing so in, uh, increasing social relatedness and the team cohesion, I think that would be a good way to utilize games and gamifications in. in yeah.
<laughs> in private life, let's say. It sounds to me a lot like um, this comes down to like whoever's responsible for implementing, like their motivations should be clear. And if their motivations start with something like, I want to increase team cohesion and provide yes. like a, a welcome, then then you're going to have a more beneficial outcome than if you want to, uh, you know, I want to uh, get them fired up about productivity or deliverable or yeah. something like that. And I'm going to use this game to do it. So it's really about the the motives directing that that use of gaming that sort of dictate what the outcomes are going to be going to be, if it's going to be positive in long term or or negative. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I don't think that that's something people think about. Um, at least from from my experience in industry, I tend to see games not always, but often used as as the the carrot and the stick sort of thing uh, as an analogy. And I wonder I wonder how that message got lost. Is it just that there's not enough uh, focus and publicity on you know uh, the research yourself and and colleagues are doing, uh, uh, or is it bottom lines? Who knows? Like. Again, I guess we can blame two sides. One, maybe researchers, not blaming because it takes time for a, any kind of research field to, to mature. So uh, this this kind of gamification kind of started with competition. But nowadays, at least in Tampere University, there are multiple gamification research groups, uh, quite prominent worldwide. Now the, the focus has kind of shifted to this cooperative gaming, cooperative gamification, how we can really like kind of like increase this kind of social bonds and structures among the individuals uh, so in a way the time like is we are we are approaching to this kind of like the, the, the understanding of how we can then utilize gamification to to improve team cohesion let's say that it's, it's going to that direction and it took some time and maybe we are a bit late you can blame us on that uh, and in terms of like again thinking from the corporate side uh, unfortunately, things move very fast in the real industry and people don't have time to, to play a long ball like, you know, let's just invest on team cohesion and hopefully it's going to be great for us in the next two, five years. So people just report three months, like quarter, like performance, like you have to deliver something at, all the time and then you are under pressure of producing more and more, being more efficient. So in that case, I guess just yeah, pushing people for competing creates faster results in the short term. That's unfortunately that's the challenge, and that's why maybe the competitive features of gamification uh, have been used to a wider extent in private sector compared to these cooperative gamification features. Okay, it's interesting. I I feel that that connects to the wider uh, the wider world of uh, continuous development or or continuous learning, and especially in the workplace um, where it's. The benefits, uh, at least as research sees them, is is typically much more long term, uh, and and I think that there's a a high desire within within uh, corporate industry at least for very like uh, short term deliverable results. I don't know that yeah. there's a solution for it, but definitely. For example. I would like to maybe comment on on this kind of like one, one potential use of gamification in industry settings is achieving knowledge transfer among employees. And in these competitive settings, we we know that knowledge hiding is prominent because knowledge is power. If you share your knowledge, then you lose your power in the in the team. That's the general understanding. So no one shares their knowledge, 
And the ones who are most knowledgeable, if they leave the company, then like no one knows what to do because they are the ones who knows the, what's going on around. Uh, so to, to avoid this, I guess like one, one option would be just focusing on the outcomes, maybe utilizing gamification and giving recognition to the employees or, or the team members for sharing knowledge with the others, for teaching them, for developing them. Uh, I see one great example of this, for example, in this uh, online community of Kaggle. It's a website for uh, teaching machine learning, data science, and all that kind of things. And there, yeah, there is a leaderboard. There is a ranking system. You have specific points. And there, the, you gain points by answering questions of people, because if you get stuck in your coding, you ask in the forum and someone replies. By replying, you get points by helping others. So in a way, the, the, the more advanced you are in that environment, it means that the more you are open to sharing your knowledge and sharing. helping the others. So the, this kind of recognition, you know, uh, so in, in that way, uh, providing knowledge transfer through gamification, I think it might be a fruitful area of both research and, and practice. Yeah, that's really cool. I never actually thought of it like that. And to gamify knowledge transfer. And that's um, that's like another big issue that we work with, obviously, like how can you um, uncover hidden knowledge in an organization and yeah, that's that's something to keep in mind. I'm going to look into this <laughs> myself. So I think we've covered this, but I, I want to come back to it and just um, ask you one more time. Um, like what's what's special about games? What do they show us or or teach us about learning that's um, unique or difficult to uncover in other situations? Um, uh, in a way, by, by, by a media, they're nothing special. In an instructional technology field, there was this big debate whether it is, is it the media or the pedagogy that really impacts education. And the, the famous uh, Professor Clark, he like is, is kind of like a commandment, like we remember in our PhD courses that he said that the, the role of media in, in knowledge development is not different than the, the role of grocery truck in our nutrition. So in a way, media or any kind of medium is just for transferring the, the knowledge to the learners. The knowledge can be transferred face to face or through webcam, through simulations, through games. And by just changing the medium itself, it doesn't guarantee a better learning experience, a better learning performance. It is the pedagogy. It is the activity you conduct in that environment that would really improve learning and teaching or learning and performance improvement, let's say. An example, you can ask student to write, let's say you are trying to teach multiplication and solve specific multiplication problems and write them 100 times in a notebook. And you can ask the same student, let's say, provide them a game and they conduct the, the, the multiplication 100 times by, by playing the game. So in a way, uh, if assuming that students conduct both activities, it would both improve learning like students who just wrote a hundred times to the notebook, most probably would have the same knowledge as the students who sold it 100 times in the game. But the, the experience itself, let's say in the game, if, if you say like, okay, the moment, anytime you solve the problem, we will give you more water to water your plants. So you will have a beautiful garden or if it's a farm, so that in order to get some farm materials, you have to solve these problems. So the activity student, the, it, it's, the activity itself, the pedagogy here is, Drill and practice, actually. You're just practicing over and over to improve your skills. 
because in some skills, like let's say vocabulary learning for, for this kind of multiplication and basic maths literacy skills, practice is important. Students have to practice to, to, to develop their skills in multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, let's say. So, but if you put it in the gamified environment, the, the activity, the, the pedagogy itself, let's say, becomes more fun. It's again drill and practice. So that's that's the promise of games, actually, as it, it, it relates to our first uh, discussion again. It triggers your curiosity and you take part in the learning activity without, uh, let's say, getting bored, without even knowing that you are in the gamified environment. So in that case, it's a more immersive experience. The, the, okay. That's the advantage of the games. More, more fun, basically. And apart from that, uh, in some fields, teaching and training is so costly and the, the, the risks are so high. For example, that's why we train pilots on the simulations, not on actual flights. They have to complete certain hours of simulation training before they fly an actual plane. Because if you drop an actual plane while training, that still it, it costs a lot in, in terms of human resources, even in terms of tragedy, whatever you call. But what you do, you create this safe environment. This is also the case for serious games, for example. You, you would like to train firefighters or you know, big chemical companies. There are always these possibilities of explosions or that kind of stuff. You cannot simulate actual explosions to train employees how to deal with that, that kind of hazardous situations. You just create this game environment, let's say. In a much safer way, you allow them to experience uh, the, the actual real life situation and how to deal with it. So in a way, games provide us a safer option uh, to develop skills and training in high risk areas, especially. That's that's one advantage. And and again, in terms of let's say teaching any kind of digital solution, like especially these games, scalable level, one teacher can attend to one student at a time. But if we can somehow develop these adaptive games, which can process learner data and provide adaptive scaffolding and support. And in that case, every student is kind of like working with a separate tutor. So and it's it's more efficient and more effective because different students have different knowledge and expertise levels. So when student is explaining a specific concept to the student who knows the least in the classroom, the others get bored. If he explains it to the to the student who knows the most and the ones who doesn't know much, they don't understand anything. So it's, it's different, difficult. I, I used to be a teacher in the classroom to find yeah. this compromise, like what is the optimum level of difficulty? I should be talking about this concept. So games, uh, we are moving towards that direction with this machine learning and artificial intelligence that we would be able to provide more adaptive, more personalized learning experiences to, to, to learners. That's the promise okay. I can say. Cool. Cool. Um, I think that just about does it for my questions at this point. Um, if you have any any other final remarks you'd like to make. Oh, I, I did have one more, actually. Yes. So based on, on what you've just said, um, do we need to train um, teachers and, and uh, pedagogical researchers in fun? Do we need to train them better to understand and have fun? I, I totally agree with this. And this goal, this goes beyond training them how to teach digital games. Uh, this is not a new concept like playful learning, playful learning experiences. Yeah. And we don't need digital tools to make any kind of classroom learning activity also fun and playful. And I, I totally agree. I think 
that that's a big necessity. I know that in some universities, like in Olo, in Lapland, uh, we, we give these kind of like playful learning experiences courses that gives the basics of how you create these kind of playful learning experiences. But in my own country, when I was receiving the teaching qualifications, I was never taught or for the course on this, like how we can make learning more playful, more, more gameful. Definitely, I think we need we need to equip new generation, even like the current generation of teachers on, and help them how to create fun, engaging and playful learning activities in their actual classrooms without even need, needing the digital games. I think that's a big yeah, gap that is awaiting to be filled, actually addressed, let's say. I, I totally agree with you. OK, problems for the future. Yes. Mujram, thank you so much for doing the call today. Uh, really appreciate it. It was super interesting. And um, let's keep in touch. Chris, thank you so much. It was fun. Uh, this is my first ever podcast in my life. I was a bit nervous. So thanks for you inviting me. And yeah, it was nice sharing my thoughts and experiences. And let's keep in touch and good luck with your work there.